Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, I'm Lenny Goldberg, and it's going to be bombs away. Not just any bombs, but they're going to be Jewish bombs flying because we shed a Torah light on the current events that are happening every day. And sometimes, you know, when we're in our daily routine, connected to social media, to the mainstream news, and we lose sight of the big picture, and it prevents us from seeing things properly in its proper perspective, and it also prevents us from bringing that blessed redemption that we're all waiting for, because we're mired in the details of the humdrum day-to-day. And that's what happened to the Jews in Egypt, in our Pasha. We read this Peshabbat. Moses comes to the Israelite nation with a message of redemption. He informs the people that after years of enslavement and oppression, God has promised to free them and bring them back to Eretz Israel. Now, you would expect the people to be overjoyed, you know, psyched up about this. Isn't that what they were waiting for? But we see in the beginning verses of the Pasha that their response was pretty disappointing. And they did not listen to Moses because a lack of spirit, and hard work. So what happened? Why aren't they receptive to Moshe's message of redemption? So the answer is that Pharaoh, he's pretty smart. And when Moses came along at the beginning and said, let my people go, what did Pharaoh do? He accelerated their workload. He knew that if he keeps them busy with work, then they won't be able to think of such lofty ideas like redemption, Eretz Israel, freedom. They just want to meet their quota of bricks. When you're working hard like that, you don't have the luxury to contemplate your future. And so when Moses reveals God's promise of the coming redemption, the people are just nonplussed to say the least because redemption is the farthest thing from their minds. The opposite. They actually got angry at Moses made things worse at the beginning. So, you know, we have the same phenomenon today. We just have different ways to prevent people from thinking. We may not have slavery of the body, but we have modern technology for more sophisticated techniques to enslave the mind. Instead of the taskmaster, you got the cell phone screen where the person is scrolling all day. He's drowned in a flood of fast moving pictures and videos. And as he absorbs all this, He's left a confused nebbish. And if he's not on his phone, he's got computers and gamings and all these worthless activities which waste his time and prevents him from thinking, what's my purpose in life? Am I satisfied with my present situation? Is there something I can do to change it? So the first step to redemption is being able to think and think clearly. Okay, let's get on now with the news. Now, we talked a lot last time about the judiciary, the judiciary in Israel, the Supreme Court and the demonstrations against the new government's attempts to make reforms. And I'm going to have to talk about it again because it is in the headlines all the time, in every newsroom, five days a week. And we mentioned last week how this new government is trying to make reforms to remove some of the authority from the Supreme Court and give it back to the Knesset because nobody votes for these judges. They're just there. And coincidentally, they all happen to be radical leftists. And you have to remember, there is no constitution in Israel like there is in the USA. So when a judge is an unhinged radical leftist in the US, he has to somehow reconcile his decisions with the constitution. So at least in the US, you have a constitution where lawmakers and judges have to adhere to, never mind that the US is now falling apart and they've eviscerated the constitution. 
that's another story. But in Israel here, there is no constitution. So there's no basis for anything. It's just up to the whims of that judge and his radical liberal mindset. And it's been like that forever. And so this new government is trying to make reforms to change this judicial tyranny. So you have headlines like this. The Times of Israel says, this is an emergency. Thousands of students rallying against judicial makeover plan. Students arrested as hundreds protest against judicial makeup. The newspaper Haaretz, students arrested as hundreds protest against judicial reforms. Then you have this in the Jerusalem Post. Naftali Bennett says, Israeli judicial reform proposal is dangerous. Hey, you remember Naftali Bennett, you know, the one who was like prime minister for about five minutes? Well, he and his little yarmulke are joining the leftists on this issue. And speaking of Naftali Bennett, it says here on the Israel activist calendar, which is, by the way, a great way to keep up to date on all kinds of events that are going on throughout the U.S. that are connected to Israel. It says here on the Israel activist calendar here that Naftali Bennett is going to be in Manhattan at Temple Emanuel on January 30th. And check out the flyer they made up for his appearance. Is Israel on the brink? Mass protests over sweeping changes to the power of the Supreme Court. The empowerment of religious nationalists over secular education. The appointment of a national security minister convicted for inciting racism and terrorism. And it says, join us to hear Naftali Bennett, Israel's 13th prime minister, in his first public appearance outside of Israel since leaving office. Prime Minister Bennett has warned that Israel's internal division suggests chilling parallels to the falls of the first and second temples. Few are better poised to address these crucial questions than PM Naftali Bennett. So on January 30th, you can hear Naftali Bennett piling on and trashing the new government and joining the leftists in their criticism of these judicial reforms. He had his moment of glory and now he's going to be another talking head making the rounds. And one more headline from the Times of Israel, which Mark Levin would probably call the Slimes of Israel. And here's the headline. It's not a reform. It's a poison. That's the quote from a former attorney general of Netanyahu. His name is Yehuda Weinstein, and he's chastising the planned judicial reforms. So like I said, for the last two weeks, this subject is just dominating the newsrooms. And you know that when the left is so bent out of shape, something good must be going on. And what's good is, is that this new justice minister, his name is Yariv Levin. He's trying to make all these judicial reforms to weaken the authority of the Supreme Court. Now, just the other day, this Israeli talking head, his name is Amit Segel, he calls out to Yariv Levin, says like this, hey, you're driving the car now. You got to start applying the brakes. Slow down. That's what he says to Yariv Levin. And so we call out to the new justice minister, Yariv Levin, and we say, step on the gas, not the brakes, and save this country. Because for years, the Supreme Court has been shaping Israel's radical agenda. I'll give you just some examples. There were many times when the IDF wanted to raise a particular orchard or an area with a lot of trees because the soldiers saw that the terrorists were hiding out in these places. And the Supreme Court ruled that it's not ethical to raise an orchard like that. And because of that, Jews have been murdered from those fields. There was a woman in Gush Katif. Her name was Tali Chatuel. Her and her four daughters were murdered in their car because of that decision. And then you have settlements like Amona near Ofra that the Supreme Court decided to expel Jews from there. Not to mention how they trample upon Judaism because their entire goal is to transform this country into a country of equal rights for all its citizens. 
no Jewish character whatsoever, and they're ideologues. So yeah, Yariv Lavin, ten gaz, as they say in Hebrew. Don't put your foot on the brakes. Put the pedal to the metal because it's the only way to get this country back. And we all know that when the leftists are protesting this strongly, you know you're on the right track. Now, going back to that Naftali Bennett flyer, he says that Israel's internal division suggests chilling parallels to the fall of the first and second temple. And that's a phrase that gets loosely thrown around, how the Sinat Chinam, the needless hatred, destroyed the second temple. And so in a very superficial way, people will say what Bennett says here, that Israel's internal divisions, their inner strife, that gives a chilling parallel to the fall of the first and second temple. Well, first of all, the first temple wasn't destroyed because of internal division, it was destroyed because of murder, sexual immorality, and idol worship. The second temple, the sages say, that was destroyed because of internal strife between Jews. But what about the internal conflicts amongst Jews in the middle of the second temple period? When we had the Maccabees against the Jewish Hellenists, that was a total war between Jews. And not only did we not have a destruction of the temple, we had a purification of the temple and the holiday of Hanukkah to boot. So when is it that sometimes internal division amongst Jews is bad and brings about the destruction of the temple? And sometimes, like in the times of the Greeks and the Hellenists, it could bring redemption. Well, the difference is this. When Hellenist Jews in the days of the Maccabees were, were striving to erase the Kedusha, the holiness from the Jewish people, they wanted to Hellenize Judea. So when you get to such a point, you have to fight Jews like that. And that's what Hanukkah was about. So during that period, it was a good thing there was internal conflict amongst Jews. We have the holiday of Hanukkah to show for it, don't we? But at the end of the Second Temple period, when the Romans were there already, it wasn't the Jews versus the Hellenists anymore. The eternal conflict there, that was among God-fearing Jews. There were no Jews who wanted to copy the Roman culture and turn the temple into a shrine to Zeus. No, we're talking then about righteous Jews who differed how to deal with the Romans. It was an inner conflict who would spearhead the rebellion. And that means there were egos involved and it wasn't totally L'Shem Shamayim. And that's the kind of civil war that brings destruction. And so it's clear that our situation today is more similar to the period of Hanukkah, where we have Jews who want to de-Judaize the Jewish state, just like the Hellenists 2,500 years ago, who sought to be Greeks in form and idea. And that's what stands behind this entire debate about the judiciary reforms, because this is a cultural war between the Jews and the Hellenists of today. Notice that what's bringing the leftists into the streets, it's not about Arabs, that this government is racist towards Arabs like they wanted to say before. No, it's about culture for them. The riots in the streets are to protest against discrimination against gays, or what we're seeing now, the court system, which they want to keep their Hellenist hold on to. And Rabbi Kahana talked about this way back in the book, 40 Years. He wrote it in the early 80s, and he saw things so clearly then, and I want to read some of it. He says like this in chapter four in the book, 40 Years. A great struggle takes place today in Israel, one that far overshadows the Jewish Arab one, for that is only a small part of the greater battle. A conflict rages that is hardly a new one, but rather the latest phase in an ongoing one, thousands of years old. Perhaps its most famous phase is commemorated rather ignorantly as the holiday of Hanukkah. And that is precisely what the struggle is today in the Jewish state that has become the state of Jews. Shall this state be the home of a chosen special higher people? cloaked in holiness and wrapped in difference? Shall it be a separate, distinctive nation, 
divided from the others, isolated from foreign cultures that sully the purity, that plunge the special people from the heights of the sacred to the depths of the profane. The choice, the decision will determine the very lives of millions. Redemption or tragedy hangs on the reply, and the decision is made daily as the Hellenists extend their clammy hand of deathly mediocrity and profanation. And he explains the Hellenist effect on the state of Israel, the external face of the nation becomes indistinguishable from that of any other people as the Hellenists disturbed artists, intellectuals, and writers, the barons of television and radio and theater, epitomizing all that is arrogance and ego, placing their own needs, desires, and illnesses over that of the sacred yoke of heaven, destroy a people and state from within, a people that was chosen by God, rejects with contempt its divine blessing. And the rabbi just gives tons of examples of how the Hellenists are trampling on Judaism. And he writes, and he writes over and over again, the Jews against the Hellenists, the real struggle. So once you know that, you can kind of get out in front of the headlines of the newspaper because you know what they're trying to do. Moving on to something else. You know, we hear all the time the term, a light unto the nations, that the Jewish people are supposed to be a light unto the nations. How do you do that? How do you make the world know that there's a Shem in the world? Well, we see clearly from our Parsha. Moses comes to Pharaoh. He says, Thus, the God of Israel says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't know the God of Israel. Never heard of him. And there's a Midrash that says, He opened up a book of gods and he couldn't find the God of Israel in the book. So Pharaoh's saying, I don't know Hashem. So how does he get to know Hashem? What brings him to the realization that there is a God in Israel? The Makot. That's what this entire Pasha is. Makah achrei Makah. A plague and another plague. Because you see, that's what the non-Jew understands. It's what he respects. He respects Koach. He respects strength. It's not like you think, oh wow, look at the Chochmah. Look at the wisdom of our Talmud. That's not going to make him respect you. Or hope that because Albert Einstein was Jewish or Sandy Koufax was Jewish, that's somehow a Kiddush Hashem somewhere. No, you want to bring Kiddush Hashem to the world? Knowledge of Hashem? It's Makot. It's Jewish power. In this case, the Jews didn't have the power. So it was the God of Israel who had to educate them. But the point is, that's what they understand. You know, when I went to college, I went to, I attended State University of New York at Albany. And that was the first time I met redneck types. I had a lot of Gentile friends back in Queens. But when I went upstate, I met a different kind of guy. The country boy from upstate New York. And they were still talking about the Six-Day War. Now, this was 1982 already, 15 years after the Six-Day War. And I'm not saying they love Jews, but they were impressed by the Six-Day War, how the Jews won that war in six days. It was amazing to them. Again, not that they loved us, but they knew about the battles, about what happened, and they were amazed by it. They knew a lot more than I did about it. But the point is, that's what they respect. And by the same token, it took a heavy hand of vengeance that brought Pharaoh to acknowledge that there is a God. And as Yul Brenner said in the movie, his God is God. But of course, we know the book is usually better than the movie, in this case especially. So we must never shy away from concepts like vengeance, because that's the path to Kiddush Hashem. Why do you think that the final scenario of redemption is a war? A war between the Melech HaMashiach and the nations who converge upon Israel. And we're going to be a big underdog and we're going to win. And everyone will know that there's a God in Israel because we exacted vengeance upon them. Chazal teach us 
that when the Kodesh Baruch Hu poreya mina umot, when he punishes the nations, shmo mitkadel mitkadesh, his name is magnified. So you can't say it any clearer than that. Now it's true that in the days of Solomon, the nations came to the temple and they saw the wisdom of Solomon and the beauty of the temple and he was a light unto the nations. But remember, before you had a Solomon, you had to have a David who would conquer the nations. Once they're conquered and subdued, then you can be a light unto the nations. They can come, they can flow into Jerusalem and see a Torah society, the proper way to live. They see the beauty of the state of Israel under Torah law. That's the final scene. But until then, the only thing that gets through to them, Omakot. Moving on, last week I talked about a healthy body which leads to a healthy soul. And I feel it myself that when your body feels right, you pray better, you're happier, you're lighter on your feet. And if you look at the Jews in the Bible, there were scholar warriors, the Davids and the Sauls and the Yorv and Surias. How about our father Jacob, who rolled that huge rock at the well all by himself? And what about the sons of Jacob? As it says in Midrash Tanchuma, that when Yosef was threatening to take Benjamin as a slave, Yehuda called to his brothers and said, just like we wiped out Shechem, we're going to wipe out Egypt. So the point is, the Jews back then, they weren't wimps. And Rabbi Cook, he wrote about the importance of a Jew being physically strong. He talks about the implications of a healthy body. In his book, Orot, he says like this, the exercise that the young Jewish men in the land of Israel engage in to strengthen their bodies, to become children of great strength for their nation, refines the spiritual power of the supremely righteous who engage in the Yehudim of the holy names of God. The righteous do this to spread God's light in the world. And the revelation of one light, that is the spiritual, will not stand without the other, that is without those engaged in physical activity. Rav Cook writes that in Orota Tachiyah chapter 34. So yeah, we shouldn't think that exercise and eating healthy is a goyish thing. There's real value for the Jewish nation to put emphasis on developing their physical prowess you know, Rabbi Kahana understood the importance of tough, strong Jews. He established in the Jewish Defense League what he called the Chayas Squad. It was a squad of these tough Chayas, tough Jews. Because you need that if you're going to confront the Nazis in Skokie or you're going to have to face the Black Panthers in Harlem. You're going to have tough, strong Jews. And I remember when I first came to Israel, one of these big guys was Richie Zim. He was like 6'7", 240. He was in the JDL, big guy. And we were a bunch of guys in an apartment. We all came to Israel basically because Rabbi Kahana kiruved us and uh, we were learning in yeshiva. We just started our learning. So we asked one another, everybody gave their story. How did you meet Rabbi Kahana? So I gave my story that I saw him on my college campus when I was learning and he kiruved me that way. And, and another guy met the rabbi at a demonstration and big Richie Zim was sitting with us. And I asked Richie, how did you meet the rabbi the first time? And Richie said, I didn't meet him. He came up to me. And he patted me on the shoulder and he said, I like big Jews, big, big Jews. So yeah, that really does come in handy when you're fighting anti-Semitism in the streets or you're fighting the Philistines in the land of Israel. If you look at the end of the book of Shmuel Bet and they describe there the 36 warriors of David HaMelech, Avishai ben Sruya, ben Ayao ben Yoyada, the verses describe how they fought the enemy. We're talking about tough, strong Jews here, these 36 warriors of King David. And so that's one of the reasons we want to learn Bible. We want to see what was the Jew like pre-Gullus, pre-exile. And if you want to learn Bible in an authentic, simple way, 
You can tune into my podcasts, Lenny Goldberg Bible Classes. It's on Anchor. It's on Spotify. The Bible is the basis of Judaism. Unfortunately, the Jew stopped learning his Bible when he was in the exile. For those 2,000 years, when we didn't have a state, we didn't have a land, so we concentrated more on the private sector, on the private halachas, in the Talmud. We reduced the Torah to the bathroom, the bedroom, and the kitchen. And now that we're back in the land of Israel, the Bible becomes supremely relevant again because it's all about life in the land of Israel where you're confronted with enemies and you have an army and you have to fight and you have to be strong to do that. And so when you look at the Tanakh, you don't see too many wimpy Jews there walking around. And I want to end with this. As you know, there were 10 plagues and seven of those plagues are in our Pasha, Pasha Vera. And the second plague was frogs, the plague of frogs. And it says like this in Exodus chapter eight, Hashem says like this, I'm going to send a plague of frogs to your whole country. The Nile is going to be full of frogs. They will come into your palace and your bedroom and into your bed and into your ovens and into your feeding troughs. And so that's what happens. The frogs, they swamp Egypt and it must've been pretty disgusting. And then it says that they died in the houses and in the fields and they were piled up in heaps and the smell of these dead frogs, that was like the worst part of the plague. But the sages say something interesting. Not all of the frogs died. Who didn't die? Those frogs that jumped into the ovens, they survived. And so the rabbis ask why. Why did they survive? Because they were Moser Nefesh by going into the ovens. They sacrificed themselves by going into these ovens. And so unlike all the other frogs, these frogs who entered the ovens, they survived. Now the question that arises here is, what do you mean they had misuit Nefesh? They had self-sacrifice. When you say somebody was self-sacrificing or he's Moshe Nefesh, it's usually that he went beyond the letter of the law. He did something he didn't have to do. But here with the frogs, there was an explicit command. It says, they shall come into your palace, into your bedroom, into your bed, into your ovens, and into your feeding troughs. So where's the Mr. Nefesh? What's the big self? Where's the self-sacrifice? It was a commandment to do it. And if you're simply fulfilling a commandment, that's usually not in the category of misu nefesh, of self-sacrifice. So why is it said about these frogs who entered the ovens that they had self-sacrifice? So the answer is that it's true that there was an explicit commandment for the frogs to enter the palace, the bedrooms, the beds, the drinking troughs, and the ovens. But every frog could have said, okay, I'm going into the bed. I'll take the bed. What meshug in a frog is going to go into the ovens? I'll tell you what kind of frog. A frog who takes responsibility, that he doesn't just go the easy way. He realizes that if everybody goes into the bed, nobody's going to go into the oven. And there'll be a chilul Hashem, there'll be an emptiness, a halala, a vacuum, where Hashem gave a commandment and it wasn't fulfilled. So these frogs who entered the ovens, they did what we say in Hebrew, higdil rosh. They took responsibility and they realized if we don't go, nobody's going to go. And then Hashem's commandment will not be fulfilled. So the lesson is, Sometimes you have to take responsibility and do those difficult mitzvahs, you know, get out of your comfort zone and not just do those cozy mitzvahs like eating sholent on Shabbat or resting or whatever, because that's also a mitzvah. But then there's mitzvahs that are a lot harder, you know, mitzvahs that aren't so comfortable, like fighting for your fellow Jews. Sometimes it can mean a willingness to get arrested for something you believe in. Because when you think about history, not just Jewish history, any history, Anything great that was accomplished, it was only through great misu nefesh, self-sacrifice. And that's where we have to get out of this comfortable Judaism, this cozy Judaism, where we're in the bed and be willing sometimes to go where it gets real hot 
you know, like an oven. Because if we don't do it, who will? And that's the lesson from the frogs. That's it for me. Don't forget to listen to my podcast, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. If you want to learn Bible the right way, you know, the Bible isn't always politically correct. The author of the Bible just doesn't care about that. And so for a true, authentic study of Bible with Jewish sources, tune in to Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. We'll see you next week. can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from Leak City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Norris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.